I'm skinny as shit. I'm scared, but also there's a part of me that's just so happy, so happy that I'm finally getting this over with. At this point, we're close to a month deep. You know, tons of medical bills, weird medical procedures. It's a month of anxiety. I feel like I'm not able to support and be there for my wife who was going through her own shit being pregnant. And man, if that wasn't my strength, you know, that was my my resolve through all of this. I've joked with with some of the doctors and nurses and people that I was interacting with in some of these medical procedures leading up to the surgery. I joked, I said, hey, I got a baby on the way. I need to get this done. I need you to take care of me. At the end of all of this, however the fuck this turns out, as long as I'm healthy and up and walking and moving and I, I have my, my health, I also have a baby coming, you know? So man, I have a lot to look forward to. Episode 25 of All In with Adam. 25. Hell of a number to come back to after a year off. I know it has been a full year. Really, this project is now almost two years old because I did about a full year of this project, uh, 24 episodes, and then I took one full year off. So it was about two years ago when I had that original wild mushroom trip that inspired this entire adventure. This particular podcast, this episode, is going to be sort of a blend. It's a mixture. It's going to be a life update. I've got some wild stories to share with you. Um, the theme of this podcast is going to be, you know, when it rains, it pours. Um, I got the shit beat out of me, metaphorically speaking, by life the past few months. And I'm not saying that to complain. I'm just letting you know that is the nature of this podcast. <laughs> sort of just like the episode that kicked this whole thing off. Sometimes when you... When you get beat up enough, you just have a lot to say. At least that's been my experience. So um, it's not all morbid. It's not all bad. I hope, I hope there's a lot of inspiring and uplifting things in this episode as well. Uh, but be- before we get into the story and you know, some of the things that have happened over the last couple months, I'd like to open up with an explanation and somewhat of an apology for what has been you know, my, my effective absence over the last year on this, this project and this platform. So... I've had a year to reflect on this this podcast, this project, and what it is and what it means to me and what I've wanted from this. And man, I figured out a lot of things, things that I, I think I'm ready to share with you after I've thought about them a lot and sort of pieced together um, what exactly has been going on the last year. When I left off on episode 24 with Chris Williamson, that episode felt great. It felt great because he was an awesome guest. He was an awesome guy. I thought the conversation was a really good one. Um, and it's also weird that within a few months of that podcast, he made his first appearance on Rogan, which is the largest podcast in the world. So to be one person, one guest removed from the largest podcast in the world, yeah, that's a pretty good spot to be in your first year of podcasting. You know, he was a solid guest and, um, you know, an awesome connection to, to make. I was really grateful and, and partially surprised that he even said yes to come on a podcast like this. And so you think, what a weird place to leave off. And in part, you know, it was that sense of accomplishment that gave me, that gave me this sense of comfort to say, let me take a step back here for a minute. And I, again, I, I've sort of pieced together what I think happened over the last year, and I want to share that with you guys. So... Having success in another domain online, the drum industry, has given me a certain, a certain degree of confidence, and it's also given me 
some expectations for what I think my numbers should be. When I post a YouTube video or an Instagram video or a podcast or anything in drum world, you know, I've gotten I've got a certain set of expectations for the amount of people that I expect to view it and to comment on that video. And I made the mistake of bringing those expectations from another domain, another industry, another platform over to this one. And so when I would post an episode on All In With Adam on this podcast, and I would get, you know, three, four, 500 views on YouTube and three, four, or 500 downloads on Spotify and Apple, you know, to me that felt disappointing. In reality, my research tells me that that still puts me in the top four or 5% of all time podcasts. Most podcasts don't even get 100 viewers. To have several hundred viewers within your first, or listeners rather, within your first 20 episodes is really, really uncommon. So by all means, there's nothing to be disappointed about. There's nothing to be angry at, but I wasn't very kind to myself. I was hard on myself about this podcast. And when I launched this podcast, I simultaneously launched a drum podcast. And the reality is the drum podcast did underperform. It, underperform. it underperformed compared to the metrics on the rest of my drum platform. Compared to a drum lesson or a drum video of some kind, it's true that that drum podcast did not do very well. But this podcast, compared to the rest of the world of podcasting did totally fine. And in my own mind, I think probably because of, of an ego problem, I, I took a bit of the, the victimhood sentiment. And I said, you know what? Neither one of these podcasts is working out. And that was unfair to do that to this project. I beat myself up over it. And I kind of said the same thing about both projects. I said, there's not enough people listening for me to justify continuing. But the reality is this project is separate. I shouldn't hold this to the same standard um, that I do for my drum content. That's a different domain. It's one that I've invested a decade into. There are standards for my metrics and analytics over in drum world. There are some projects that just, you know, objective reality states that this isn't going to work out. So people don't want to watch this kind of thing. And I took some of those numbers and I just applied them to this podcast. And that was foolish of me to do. And I use that as a justification for not continuing because I didn't have the success that I wanted. It wasn't that I was doing something that wasn't well received, that wasn't the case, but it felt easier to tell myself that story than to admit that this is a lot more work than you thought you signed up for. You know, if I ever wanted to do a podcast like this full time, the reality is it's years and years of grinding, just like the drum industry, just like any industry. I'm not going to get that fucking lucky that I get to do 20 episodes and boom, all of a sudden you're getting hit up by the biggest podcasters in the world and this is profitable and you can monetize everything. Of course, that's not reality, but I wanted that to be the case. Of course I did. And when I saw that this was going to be more work than I anticipated, that it wasn't going to be a handout from the podcast industry or the philosophy world or the self-help world or whatever you want to, whatever category you want to put this podcast in. When I realized that this wasn't going to be that easy, it felt a lot better to just say, well, fuck it. People must not like it enough. And that's just not true. It's objectively not true. And so I am working through addressing that victimhood mentality um, to tell myself that that I am no victim. I was actually quite successful and I, I kind of shot myself in the foot by telling myself the wrong story about this podcast. And so um, I'm working through that, you know, personally, and this episode is part of that um, healing process, if you want to call it that and get that, you know, yogi about it. But 
Um, I'm working through that, and I wanted to be honest with you guys and tell you that that's kind of what I'm dealing with here. I'm trying to be kinder to myself and more empathetic. Well, you can't be empathetic with yourself, but uh, kinder is probably a better word. I'm trying to be kinder to myself regarding this project and remind myself that um, I shouldn't have any overwhelming expectations about this, and that if I really want it to work, it's going to require... Um, you know, a lot of effort, and that's okay. That's okay. It doesn't, I don't need to whoop my own ass over whether or not this podcast succeeds. If I want it to succeed, there are certain steps that I have to take over a long period of time, and I've yet to do that work. So that's, um, that's a pretty obvious, pretty obvious explanation of what exactly is going on here, and it also becomes obvious of what I need to do moving forward. So that's, uh, that's what I'm going to do, and that's where I'm at, and I hope that, that explanation sort of makes sense as to why, um, why I've taken so much time off. The reality is there's a part of me, a chunk of me, that still has this savage entrepreneurship thing going on, and that's not going to fly for this project. I can't have that attitude. I can't bring that attitude into a project like this. It's just not what it is. So I'm trying to chill out, and hopefully you guys um, you guys understand that. So I'm sorry for the year off. I'm back now. I can't give you any promises or guarantees about some content schedule moving forward, but what I can tell you is that when things get rough and things get weird and you're not sure what to do, you know, I like to just do the next best thing. And so the next best thing for me is this episode. So that's what I'm doing. That's what I got for you today. I got one episode for you and uh, we'll see where this one takes us. So this whole story starts about Two months ago, you know, time has just been an absolute blur. It's really hard for me to give you exact dates, but I'll try to sort of narrow in on the timeline as we get further into this. But a couple months ago, you know, I had what I would describe as a lazy week of eating. You know, I've, I've come off of the carnivore diet since I went to Spain uh, last November. I did that because I wanted to enjoy the cuisine in Spain. I didn't want to go there and have this extremely strict diet. And I was really glad that I did that because I realized that when you, when you go to a non-capitalist country, um, or a country that doesn't do, do tipping, let's just say, you can't tip at a restaurant, you also don't get to modify your food orders. Like, no kidding, in Spain, I would go and to go to a diner, and I would order, um, I would order like a breakfast, and say, "Can I have an extra piece of bacon, or can I have two extra eggs?" And they would literally tell you, "If you want extra eggs and bacon, you should go to this other restaurant where they serve extra eggs and bacon, because we don't do that here, right?" Like, and it's weird when you take away this fixture of of tipping somebody or giving them extra money for an additional or a, or a higher quality of service. You know, man, it's it's kind of hard to ask for the stuff that you need. That was a very Western concept, and I didn't realize that going there. So it was actually really difficult to to be on a specific diet unless you knew what restaurants to go to where they would actually serve the exact food that you wanted. Long story short, making modifications to food was really tough um, going to a country like Spain. And this was a problem that happened every single time you went out to eat. So I was really glad that I loosened up my diet. It was a really good decision. It made the trip a lot easier because I could sort of eat a little bit of everything that I wanted. But when I came back, I left my diet fairly loose. I wasn't eating very much gluten. I was still eating very low sugar. Um, I I did come off of a fat-based diet, and I was eating... Um, some carbohydrates. Um, so, you know, eating what you might call a, a relatively healthy, but still a standard American kind of diet, a little bit of everything. 
And I ate that way for, I don't know, nine or 10 months and everything went fine. I put on some weight. Some of that was intentional. I just wanted to get my weight back up and I had gotten tired of being 155 pounds on carnivore. I felt a little skinny, a little squirrely. And I got up to almost 190 pounds, which is about as heavy as I get, um, at least in my, my adult physique. You know, 188, 190 is about the, the biggest I've ever seen myself. And part of me likes, you know, having a little bit of bulk on me. And so that was cool. But I had, in September, I had what I would describe as kind of a lazy week of eating. I had a lot of hot sauce. It gave me some, some heartburn, a little bit of like indigestion feeling, a little stomach acid. Um, sometimes coffee on an empty stomach will give me that. But just kind of had that feeling for a couple days. Um, I also had um, more gluten than I would normally have in a week, like two or three days in a row where I would have something in the day that had gluten in it. Uh, I know that doesn't always agree with my system. I had a little bit of extra dairy, just cheese here and there, and I'm not fully lactose intolerant, but I'll notice my skin will break out if I have too much dairy, things like that. And, and so I kind of knew, after feeling unwell for a couple of days and having some, some gastrointestinal symptoms, I kind of knew, like, okay, I probably did this to myself. I, I ate some, some bullshit. Let me chill out. Let me eat nice and clean and healthy. Uh, somewhat of a paleo diet would be my definition of a clean and healthy diet. I said, let me eat that for a few days and just let my system sort of um, clear itself up. Now, to my surprise, that didn't work. It didn't work at all. I felt bad for several days in a row. Nauseous, fatigued, uh, appetite was all over the place. This feeling of heartburn wouldn't really go away. It was like there was a constant acidic sort of feeling in my stomach, regardless of what I had eaten. And even after two or three days of eating clean, drinking tons of water, not drinking any alcohol, you know, you would think things are going to clear up a little bit, but I just kept feeling bad. And so I had this you know, in hindsight, just this fucking super bright idea of let me take a laxative to clear the pipes, so to speak, to get my system clean. I said, there must be something in me that I ate. It's kind of sitting in my stomach, just not moving through. Let me clear the pipes and see if I can get to feeling better. Now, when I had done uh, Kratom for back pain years ago, I had dealt with some constipation. And in dealing with that, I had taken a variety of different laxatives, none of which ever had an adverse effect on me. They all just kind of did what they were supposed to do. And so I had some of those older laxatives sitting in the medicine cabinet. I had a couple of uh, Dolcolax tabs. Dolcolax is a stimulant laxative. It's a relatively strong one, and you can find plenty of horror stories online of people who took it and had bad experiences, but I had taken it a hundred times before. Never had anything happen to me. So I popped uh, a couple of Dolcolax just to see if it would get things moving. It felt like, man, if I could just, you know, maybe fast for a day or two, really get a bunch of stuff out of my system, maybe I would feel better. Well, it led to, you know, eight hours of horrible stomach cramps. I mean, I was absolutely miserable. Um, severe anxiety. Part of that is tied into my childhood. When I was young, I used to get panic attacks. And because I was six, seven, and eight years old when I would get these panic attacks, I didn't know how to describe them. And so I would tell my mom that I was sick, that I felt nauseous and sick to my stomach. And in reality, it, it was just pure anxiety, but it would kind of manifest itself as a form of nausea. Some of that is tied into um, the vagus nerve. It's a nerve that runs from your brain to your stomach. It's part of the serotonin connection there. And so nausea and anxiety can, can sort of get conflated for a lot of people, and I was always one of those people. So being extremely nauseous, having a lot of stomach problems, gave me this residual anxiety, and so it was a really miserable state to be in. And I joked with Kelly early on into this, you know, eight hour night. This reminds me of the bad mushroom trips, right? It reminds me of a bad psychedelic trip. Like I'm fucking trapped in this miserable state. Like really, it was, it was extremely unpleasant. 
Um, high degree of suffering for sure, physically. And so I rode that out. The next day, you know, I still felt horrible. The laxative didn't actually work in that nothing came out of me. Now I actually felt constipated. I felt like I really have to go, but I can't. And that's a new problem because it wasn't like I felt like nothing was coming out before. It just felt like I'd love to get everything out. But now it feels like stuff is stuck. This is a new feeling now. And so I said, let me take a day off. Hydrate, drinking tons and tons of water. Uh, I believe I fasted for a full day. And then the following day, I said, let me take um, a much, much gentler laxative. The one I chose was milk of magnesia. Um, it's a much gentler laxative, and it actually does have some, uh, some effects that are similar to like a Pepto-Bismol. It can help with stomach acid, things like that. It has a chalky pink texture and consistency um, of viscosity that is very similar to Pepto-Bismol, and it can actually have some antacid effects. So I thought maybe that's a smarter choice. Really similar result, unfortunately. Um, not quite as bad as Dolcolax, but it also didn't work. Um, it produced some really negative side effects. Um, shortness of breath, in and out of consciousness in a way, extreme anxiety, still some stomach pain, not the full-blown cramping, but really bad, really, really bad. And again, did not work. Nothing came out. I feel even more constipated now. And it's just going horrible. So things are just backfiring on me one after another. And I can't make sense of why none of this is working. And at this point, we're about a week into this stomach issue. And still, you know, nothing I've tried is working. And I still feel really bad. So again, I, I say, let me take another day off. Let me take another full day off. Nothing but water, fasting, giving my stomach a break and really just see if my body can work this out. And so I do another full day in bed. Again, we're about a week deep into this thing. I'm very confused, uh, but I know that hydrating and not eating is probably the smartest thing I can do to give my digestive system a chance to catch up and get its shit together, pun intended. Now, being a week into this experience, I am wholly miserable. I'm scared. I'm confused. There's been tears and panic attacks and talks of, you know, what if this is a really serious problem? At what point do I go to the hospital? You know, it's just a, I've had several scary, weird, anxiety-ridden nights in a row. Um, and, you know, I'm not working. I'm not really eating. I'm in bed all day. And, you know, it's just getting, it's getting fucking weird. It's getting scary. Um, I don't know what's going on. And, and the confusion only adds to the anxiety to not have any answers, right? Anxiety is a condition of, of being confused or having neurotic thoughts about the future. And that was an excellent description of the state that I was in. I had a lot of negative emotion about what was happening and what was going to happen uh, because I didn't have a lot of answers, right? There was a lot of scary question marks in my world. And Kelly was wonderful through this whole thing. She was, you know, here to help me. Um, you know, physically, so she was bringing me anything that I needed. She was here to help me emotionally when the anxiety became overwhelming, and she was just very, very present. And uh, this one morning that I had, I had woken up, and you know, we were kind of getting into decision territory: Do I go to the hospital? Do I go to a doctor? I don't have fucking health insurance, so it's a big bill anytime I decide to walk into a doctor's office. And you know, it, it was just, it was a rough night, not sleeping well. And Kelly walks into the room at around seven a.m., maybe seven thirty. And she's got tears in her eyes. And my first thought was, Jesus Christ, what could possibly be happening this week that would make this any worse? I'm, I'm already a week deep into this, you know, hellish experience. I'm confused. I don't know what's going on. And God damn it, it seems like we have another disaster that just got dropped into our lap. You know, 
my first thought was like, did one of the fucking pets die? Like, is one of my dogs or my cats dead? Is a fucking goat dead in the backyard? Like, what is going on? Because I can't, I don't feel like I have the capacity to handle any more negativity. This is already overwhelming me, unfortunately. And it feels like something else negative dropped on top of here is just going to kill me. And metaphorically speaking, you know. And um, she's got tears in her eyes and she walks over to me with, I'm going to grab my, my vape, my e-cigarette here because it's, it's about the same shape of what she handed me. She hands me a little white stick. And I'll probably get emotional here because I'll never forget her face when she said this. And she said, do you see, do you see the line? And it took me a few seconds to realize that she was handing me a pregnancy test with a bold fucking red line across the, the positive part of the test. One of the little pea strips. And my eyes just filled with tears. Because Kelly and I have been trying to have a baby for two years. And God, it reminds me of that, that fucking Bob Marley quote. When the music hits you, you feel no pain. You know, it's not just music. There's a lot of things in life that when they hit you, man, the pain just disappears. Emotional pain, physical pain, it all just evaporates. And God, it was just like getting shot up with morphine. You know, I just began to weep with joy. And she laid on the bed and we just hugged and held each other and cried. And we were just so happy. And for... The next several hours, I completely forgot about everything that was going on in my world. Because it wasn't my world anymore, it was our world, you know? It was our world and our baby's world, you know? And so we, we just sat on the couch in the living room for hours, and we decided, you know, maybe we could text a couple of our friends, a select few people, you know, the ones who really know we've been trying. And we texted all of them and, you know, we decided we could call our parents and, you know, again, you're cautious with who you tell. You don't just go scream into the world right away because you want to go to, go to a doctor and you want to make sure everything is, is healthy and as it should be. But she took several more pregnancy tests um, and determined that, yeah, she's definitely pregnant, at least according to all the pregnancy tests, her HCG levels, um, hormonally speaking, she should be pregnant or something is extremely wrong, but she seemed pregnant. Then we realized she had had a few symptoms over the last couple weeks that all kind of lined up, peeing three or four times a night, uh, waking up extremely hungry, randomly nauseous throughout the day. We start piecing all this together and go, holy shit, you've been pregnant for sure. So she was pregnant. And, you know, it, it really, it just made for an awesome morning. I felt no pain. I completely just forgot about everything I had going on. So we decided to go to our favorite breakfast place in Orlando here. And we went there um, and I had a very light breakfast. I was still kind of aware that my stomach is doing some weird stuff. And so I had a very light, easy breakfast, just a few, a few eggs and took most of it home, didn't eat that much there. Um, and I decided, you know, to celebrate, I had, I got, uh, an espresso martini while we were out. Um, I hadn't had coffee in quite a while and, but it went down fine. Didn't bother me. Didn't have enough drinks to even feel it. You know, just wanted to have something to celebrate this really special morning. And we're just on cloud nine. We're so excited. You know, it's just amazing. We're just talking about this pregnancy and we're going through our list of baby names and, you know, we're doing all the cool shit that you do when something like this happens. And then we decided to go home. 
And because I'm in such an optimistic, positive mood, you know, I decide, hey, you know what? To really get things moving in my system, maybe it was this, the one drink that I had, the espresso martini, but I decided, you know, I'm gonna try a baby dose of uh, Miralax. Miralax is an incredibly gentle laxative. They give it to infants. It doesn't really scare me like Milk of Magnesia does, or definitely not like fucking Dolcolax, like a stimulant laxative. Miralax is an osmotic laxative, so it just brings water into your intestines to sort of help things get moving, and it very rarely has any negative side effects. So I said, let me take a small dose of that. Um, just sort of like a thought in the back of my head. I didn't really give it that much attention. And so we get home from this breakfast and we're still just, you know, fucking on cloud nine, just so excited, so happy. We're texting several of our close friends. These are like people that were in our wedding, like people we know really well. And um, this Miralax starts to kick in and it's the worst reaction yet. Within 30 or 40 minutes, I'm losing consciousness. Like I'm, I'm having these little flash blackout moments. And I'm, I'm sitting on the toilet and stuff is coming out, but it's like water. It's just water is coming out, not anything of substance. And I know that what that's doing is robbing me of all of my electrolytes, it's dehydrating me, and it's not actually helping my stomach at all. So I'm just getting dehydrated. So I'm trying to chug electrolyte drinks and things like that, but I'm still just having these little blackouts. I'm losing my breath completely, um, where I almost like forget to breathe. Um, or I get very, you know, shortness of breath, um, extreme anxiety. I'm profusely sweating, like sweat just dripping off of my body. And this is like, at this point, maybe 2 or 3 p.m. I think it was on a Sunday. You know, it's just, things are not going well. This is the worst reaction yet. I'm very, very scared. And <clears throat> all of the joy that we had experienced that morning just fucking got sucked out of the house, you know? Like, all of a sudden, we're just back into doom territory. Something is fucking wrong. And so we decide, you know, now we need to go to the ER. The loss of consciousness was the line that I had to draw. It's just too much, too scary. And knowing that I had taken one of the most gentle laxatives on the planet, the one that they give to babies, and this is what's happening. This is not a normal reaction. This is whatever's going on in my stomach and digestive system requires medical expertise. We're going to the fucking hospital and that's that. So we go to the ER, but unfortunately it is packed and we're sitting there for hours and hours and hours and hours until finally I start feeling better after a while. And I feel good enough to say, you know what? I don't think anything else is gonna happen. I think the Miralax has actually cleared my system now. I don't feel good, but I don't feel like I'm in hell. So let's go home. Let's go home and then tomorrow morning we'll call a specialist because more than likely at the ER, all they're gonna do is treat my symptoms. They're gonna give me fluids and electrolytes and make sure that I'm stable. They're gonna check all my vitals. They're gonna charge me $1,000 and then they're gonna send me home and refer me to a specialist anyway. And so I'm smart enough to know that that's not worth the grand. We've been in the waiting room for hours. Let's just go home and call a specialist in the morning. So that's what we did. We went home and the next morning decided to call a specialist. So we call the specialist. I get a uh, virtual appointment with a gastroenterologist and they say, hey man, you know, first step is to get a CT scan. So I hunt down a CT scan facility that's local. Um, it was like 150 bucks, walk in same day, get a CT scan. Well, the results come back, they send them to me, but I can't even open the files. And you know, it unfortunately takes a few days. I'm not eating in this time. I went on a full liquid diet just to, to 
you know, not aggravate my stomach. I'm definitely not taking a fucking laxative. You couldn't pay me to do that. And so I have a little bit of stability, but I'm still very scared. Something's wrong. I am not back to normal. Things are getting worse. Um, and so I'm just waiting for this CT scan, the results, to get sent to the gastroenterologist, and they can call me and sort of explain what might be going on. So a few days go by. Finally, I get a call, and they say, hey, um, the CT scan had some odd results, not what we were expecting at all. This doesn't look totally normal. We want you to do a colonoscopy. Now, a colonoscopy is the snake camera up the ass. Men normally don't have to get this until they're 40 or 50. Women are recommended to get it as well. Um, and it's to check for colon cancer, which is a really common cancer. It's very treatable, um, and it can be, you know, prevented or you, you can fight against colon cancer really easy, but you have to get a colonoscopy. So it's recommended later in life, but not in your early 30s. And the downside is to get a colonoscopy, you have to take a really large amount of laxatives to clear your system so there's not feces inside of your colon when the camera goes up so the camera and the doctor can get a good view. And my instinctual reaction was, fuck you. Fuck you, I'll take another laxative. Absolutely not, absolutely not. And so I thought about it for a couple more days. My anxiety is building. I'm waking up in the night pouring sweat. And I don't know if this is because of anxiety or if it's, if it's a physical symptom, but I am unwell. Things are not going well. And I'm having trouble discerning what is a psychological symptom from the stress and anxiety going on versus what could be a physical symptom because something is wrong with my body. And I, I think this through for a few days. And finally, I call them and I tell them, you know what? I'm not doing the colonoscopy. I'm too scared of the laxative. It doesn't feel like a wise thing to do. And the woman on the phone, her name was Diane. She said, Adam, she said, I don't want to scare you. But she said, I don't think you've taken a, a good look at your CT scan results. And I said, you're right. I said, I actually couldn't even open the file. I said, I know you, that you guys said it was abnormal and you wanted a colonoscopy. But that's all you said. And I said, what am I missing here? And she said, let's go over the CT scan together. And so she sent me a different copy and we opened it together and looked at the CT scan. And she said, you might have an intestinal tumor. She said, you absolutely have appendicitis. Your appendix has an appendicolith or an appendix stone. Uh, and she said, there is inflammation throughout your entire colon. It looks like a bomb went off inside of your stomach. And I said, well, that fucking makes sense because that's how it feels. And she said, Adam, there is so many, there's so many abnormalities that you would be foolish to not get a colonoscopy. This is not, this doesn't look like the kind of thing that's going to work itself out. And she said, I know it, it sounds like you're trying to tough it out and good for you, but I don't think this is going to work itself out. It just doesn't look like it. There's way too many fucking weird things happening for this to just work itself out. It doesn't look like that kind of situation. You need to get a colonoscopy. And God, the fucking dread that just came over me thinking about having to take more laxatives, having had three separate incidences of going to hell. And then it's just like, well, just go back for a fourth. Oh, fuck you. God, the fear, the fear. I haven't been that scared as an adult in a long time. And so I called my mom. I, you know, I'm always in contact with my mom. We talk every week. 
But I said, you know, mom, I'm, I'm terrified of taking these laxatives. I'm worried that I'm going to have to go to the ER again, that I'm going to end up in the hospital for taking these laxatives because now they're prescription strength laxatives because this is colonoscopy prep and they don't fuck around. They don't tell you to just go buy something at CVS. They prescribe you laxatives that are very powerful to clear your whole system out. And I said, you know, Miralax, the one for fucking infants, hospitalized me last time. And I'm worried I'm gonna end up in the ER again. Now I have a pregnant wife and I don't wanna put this kind of stress on her. So I asked my mom who lives in North Carolina, I said, mom, could you come down for this colonoscopy and the prep the night before in case this goes wrong? Because it feels like I'm going to war with my own body here. And if this goes wrong, the only person I have to really depend on here is my pregnant wife and I don't wanna put her through this. And so my mom said, of course. And she got on a plane right away, flew down, because of course she did. I have an awesome mom, that's what moms do. And she was, she was here within a day or two. And um, then we had the colonoscopy prep. Now, for those who have ever done a colonoscopy, I'll tell you that what I got prescribed was called Sutab. Um, Sutab is, it's like 12 or 15 pills. It's a lot of pills um, that you have to take. It's a mixture of this potassium magnesium blend. And um, yeah, it just, you know, essentially clears you out. Now, what I didn't know was that being on a liquid diet for at least a week, maybe close to two weeks at this point, it's actually a really good way to go into a colonoscopy prep. And surprisingly, I did not have that crazy of a reaction. You know, it just worked. Sutab worked. Everything came out of my system. I was, you know, shitting just water by the end of the night. You're supposed to basically stay up overnight taking this stuff. But after a couple of doses, everything was out, you know? It was just like water coming out of me. I felt lean and hollow and empty and everything I could research online seemed to tell me that this had worked well, I am empty and I'm good to go for this colonoscopy. So that was a huge relief. There was no extra ER visit and I think I'm good to go get my colonoscopy and then we'll get some real fucking answers here. And so that worked out okay. So me and my mom and Kelly, the next morning, we go in to do the colonoscopy. Um, I didn't realize, kind of cool, the anesthesia that they put you under is not really anesthesia, it's an IV of a benzodiazepine that is one with an incredibly short half-life. So it's just a short, fast-acting, powerful fucking Xanax that they put you under. And man, it was a, one of the more enjoyable like surgical experiences I've ever had. Whew, you just, I mean, just cruising, just happy as shit. And uh, I was like, I had a moment of anger when I woke up, like, that's it? that's it, like put me back under, that was so sick, like the most peaceful, blissful nap you've ever had. So colonoscopy, for what it's worth, great experience, uh, totally painless, just fast, in and out, it felt like I blinked my eyes and it was over, and um, so then the doctor comes in, uh, Dr. Uh, Benjamin Inayat, and he comes in and he says, well, he said, I have some, some good news um, and some weird news. He said, um, the good news is, all of the suspected stuff on your CT scan, which included Crohn's disease, an intestinal tumor, um, they thought possibly kidney stones, I mean, there's all sorts of weird suspected shit on my CT scan. He said, you don't have any of that stuff. You don't have Crohn's, there are, there's no tumor, um, the inflammation is kind of going down, but he said, the whole story here is your appendix. He said, your appendix you had appendicitis, you don't have it anymore. Your appendix is no longer infected. Your body beat the infection. So congratulations, you don't have appendicitis. But your appendix, instead of swelling out of your colon and rupturing, for some reason, it retracted inside of your colon, inside of your cecum, and it swelled up there. 
And unfortunately, it's stuck. Your appendix is still inside of your colon. I'm gonna put a very grotesque image on the screen right now. Uh, this is my colonoscopy, so, you know, welcome to, you know, my fucking asshole. And, uh, yeah, it, it's supposed to be empty there, and you can see what looks like this tumor, right? Like this big mass. And that is my appendix inside of my colon. I think they're able to tell that it's not infected by doing blood work and also by just, you know, visually looking at it on camera. And they said, you know, it's, it's absolutely not infected anymore. So your body did beat appendicitis, but it still looks abnormal and it absolutely has to come out. Now, the removal of an appendix is called an appendectomy. And in my case, it would be called a complicated appendectomy because it's not this little tube sock thing hanging off of your colon. Mine is inside my colon for some reason, and it's still inflamed. So it is a complicated appendectomy, and that is the, the surgery that I need to have. So I get referred to a... Uh, to a specialist. My doctor's name was Dr. Teresa Debesh Adams. She's a colorectal surgeon, um, and she's a bad, bad bitch. She's awesome. If you look up the resume on this woman, um, she's on the board of directors for the hospital that she works at. Um, she's sick, man. Re really, really impressive doctor. And here's the crazy thing. Before this referral went through, I, you know, it had been almost a week after my colonoscopy, after this diagnosis, and knowing that I need to have an appendectomy, I need to have my appendix removed, I said, awesome, let's get the surgery scheduled. Like, can we do this today? And they said, no, 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 you have to get a referral, you need to go to a specialist, it's gonna be a little bit of time. So a week goes by, and I can't get this fucking referral to get pushed through to the doctor's office. So I start researching my own colorectal surgeons, and I decided that the one I wanted, if I could pick, was Dr. Teresa Debesh Adams. I had done my research of all the colorectal surgeons in Orlando, and I said, I want her. And finally, my referral goes through, and I get a phone call from the office of Dr. Teresa Debesh Adams. That's who my gastroenterologist had chosen for me, was the same doctor that I had fucking chosen for myself. So man, did that feel good. Like this was exactly who I wanted. Um, in, in the whole Central Florida area, this was the doctor I picked, and that's the same one he picked. So it was frustrating that it took a week to get into her office, but finally I get into her office. Uh, I meet with her and her team, and they say, you know, we are gonna have to take your appendix, it's possible we're going to have to take um, part of your cecum as well, which is the little sac that the appendix hangs off of. If I'm not mistaken, forgive my pronunciation, I'm not, you know, I don't live in the medical world, but I believe it was called an ileocecotomy is the removal of the cecum. And they said, you're probably gonna have to have a partial ileocecotomy as well as a complicated appendectomy. So it's considered two procedures. All of this can be done laparoscopic laparoscopically, meaning we can use little robot arms. So you'll have the same incisions as someone who gets their appendix removed. It's like three specific little incisions. But we go in with the robot arms, and we're gonna take out uh, definitely your appendix and probably part of your cecum. It just depends on how things look when we get in there. Now, before we go in to do this surgery, which is at this point scheduled, you know, I'm really relieved that we have the surgery on the books. It's coming up. It's like a week or two out. I'm still eating, or rather, just on an all-liquid diet, by the way, just complete liquid. I'm dropping weight super quick. I probably lost 20 pounds um, inside of two or three weeks. Nothing but um, light fruit smoothies and bone broth, and that's kind of it. So I'm dropping weight like crazy, and I have one final CT scan that I have to have uh, before I actually do this surgery. That one is with the weird chalky liquid that you have to drink first. It helps with um, visual visualization of your, your intestines. 
And then I had to do the iodine injection, uh, an IV of iodine, uh, which feels weird as shit. It's like this wave of heat that goes over your body. You feel like you pissed yourself. It's a really strange, strange experience. But I had to have one more CT scan, and Dr. Adams described that as, um, she said that CT scan is the roadmap of your entire torso, and it's what we'll use uh, for our surgery. So I had that CT scan. It went okay. It wasn't comfortable, but it uh, went okay. Had that done, and then I go in for surgery. And uh, I'm skinny as shit, I'm scared, but also there's a part of me that's just so happy, so happy that I'm finally getting this over with. At this point, we're close to a month deep. You know, tons of medical bills, weird medical procedures. It's a month of anxiety. I feel like I'm not able to support and be there for my wife who was going through her own shit being pregnant. Um, she's had a couple of appointments that some of which I went to and some of which I couldn't go to, uh, pregnancy appointments, but everything seems to be going well there. And man, if that wasn't my strength, you know, that was my, my resolve through all of this. I've joked with, with some of the doctors and nurses and people that I was interacting with in some of these medical procedures leading up to the surgery, I joked, I said, hey, I got a baby on the way. I need to get this done. I need you to take care of me. Um, you know, I've got, I've got people counting on me. I've got an unborn child and a pregnant wife that are counting on me, you know? And it was uh, like a running joke in my mind and it helped me. It helped me to have that to look forward to. At the end of all of this, however the fuck this turns out, as long as I'm healthy and up and walking and moving and I, I have my, my health, I also have a baby coming, you know? So man, I have a lot to look forward to. And it was just this, functionally, it was just this big light at the end of the tunnel and it gave me such a, such a, um, a much needed hope. And, I go in to get the surgery, and Kelly's with me, and, you know, for being a pregnant woman, God, she was just, you know, um, already functionally acting as a mother, right? Just just taking care of me, everything I needed, um, driving me to all of these appointments, and just, just being an awesome wife, really. And so she's there with me when I go to get the surgery, and uh, they said, you know, we expect that you'll be able to go home at the end of the day. For an appendectomy, the surgery is between one and two hours, depending on how, how it goes, but more than likely, we're going to send you home later tonight. Uh, maybe we keep you overnight for one night. It just depends on how you're feeling and sort of how your blood work looks, but most people can go home the same day. It is considered major colon surgery, but it's on the real low end of the major scale. You know, it's not, uh, it's not that brutal of a surgery. A lot of people can go home the same day. So I said, okay, that sounds good. I'm looking forward to going home, even if that's in like the middle of the night, maybe early the next morning, but I'll get home, I'll start recovering, give me my bottle of painkillers, we'll ride this thing out and we'll be, uh, we'll be good to go. So I'm going into surgery, I'm getting wheeled in, and weirdly enough for all the anxiety and the weirdness that I've experienced you know, over this last month, the surgery itself wasn't that scary. You know, I've had a couple of minor surgeries, I had my adenoids out um, when I was young, and been hospitalized for broken bones and shit when I was young, but, but nothing that, that ever really scared me. Hospitals always felt safe to me because I'm surrounded by medical experts that are taking care of me. So this place feels pretty safe. The surgery itself I know is just like a blink of an eye, then you're awake, you're a little sore and you got an IV of morphine, so you know you ask him for an extra, extra pump of the morphine and you're good. So the surgery wasn't wasn't anxiety inducing. I rolled into there just with a smile on my face and told all the nurses and doctors. I said, "Let's go, let's cruise, let's get this done," you know. And I woke up after uh, you know that mass slides on and then boom, you flash and you're a couple hours in the future. And I woke up in some extreme pain. I mean, 
moaning and writhing in pain. And I remember Kelly went to like rub my head and I pulled away from her and just screamed like stop, like the stimulus, I couldn't handle the stimulus of even being touched. So much pain, so much discomfort. Um, it, really, I, I felt like something was wrong. This is an unorthodox amount of pain to be in, knowing full well that that IV bag hanging up there is full of morphine. I don't feel right. And they said, okay, okay. And so they upped my dose and kind of put me back under a little bit, like, you know, not, not anesthesia, but, you know, um, just cruise it on morphine. I'm, I'm really out of it. And a couple hours later, they come in and they say, hey, man, we ran some blood work and you're going back into surgery. Um, your hemoglobin is coming in at a six. When it hits a seven, that's critical. Anything lower is very dangerous. It means you're losing blood. Now, physically, you're not bleeding anywhere on the outside, so you're, you're bleeding internally. And they said, our best guess is that you are hemorrhaging blood from your colon where we made these incisions. And so the next thing we have to do is get you into another CT scan. This is my third or my fourth CT scan inside of a few weeks at this point. And they say that CT, CT scan will tell us if the incisions that we made or the staples that we put in your colon, if those have gone bad, you know, then we'll at least know that it was our fault that something had gone wrong here. But they said, we really don't know. We just know that you're losing blood inside of your body somewhere. And a CT scan is what we need to figure out. And right after that CT scan, you're going into the operating room. So... They wheel me in, we do the CT scan, same thing. Um, I didn't have to drink the liquid this time, but the weird IV, feel like I'm gonna piss yourself, hot. I'm unbelievably high on IV opiates. And then I get wheeled back into pre-op and we're about to go back into surgery and the doctor just walks in and she says, I've got some good news and some bad news. Again, it's like the third or fourth fucking conversation of good news, bad news that I've had. And she said, uh, the good news is all of your bleeding while internal, it appears to be still inside of your colon. So you're not bleeding into your abdomen. The blood is not just, you know, inside of your, your torso, you know. We don't have to open you up and clean out the blood. The incisions that we made, the staples that we made, or that we put into those incisions on your colon, those are all solid. Everything held. But you are hemorrhaging inside of your colon. So you still are losing a tremendous amount of blood. But when it's inside of your colon, that means that you're gonna shit all of it out. So she basically said, over the next several days, you are going to pass a tremendous amount of blood out your asshole, basically. You're gonna shit out like a third of the blood in your body is gonna come out of your asshole. But we don't need to open you back up. There's no second surgery. So uh, uh, really the epitome of a good news, bad news situation, I guess, right? Uh, a lot to be happy about and a lot to be fucking freaked out about. So um, as she said that, I made a joke. I said, you know, I don't know if it's, it's the placebo effect or just the psychology of someone telling you you're going to shit a lot of blood. But I said, I really feel like I've got to go. For the first time in like weeks, I feel like I really have to go. And everybody said, good, let's go to the bathroom. And so they hobble my high ass into the bathroom and I sit down. My wife's in the bathroom with me. And I'm telling you like a half gallon of just, just deep red, like Halloween vampire blood just comes out of my ass. It was insane to see it. I was so high, I didn't care. But even Kelly was just like, good God, just like purely liquid blood. That's it. And uh, they take me from there straight to the ICU because I need blood transfusions immediately. Um, and so they have blood bags hanging all around me. I ended up getting three 
units of blood. Uh, they also did plasma, and for some reason, my magnesium took a huge dive. Um, and I believe they also did potassium, a couple other IVs as well, based on my electrolyte panel. Um, everything was off, because when you lose a certain amount of blood, you know, everything's off, right? Like you're just fucking losing blood. So magnesium, potassium, blood plasma, and blood itself. Um, all of these were, were just getting pumped into me. Four IVs in my arms at once, two in each arm. Um, one weird thing that had happened, they asked me, what is your blood type? When I was, when I, they realized when I woken up from this surgery, I think they asked me or they asked Kelly, you know, what's your blood type? And I said, O negative. Always has been O negative. I'm positive. That's what it is. It's O negative. Always has been. And they said, well, before we put this blood into your body, we've got to test your blood to confirm your blood type because sometimes people are wrong. And they said, we've tested you three times and your blood type is now B positive. Your blood type has changed. There are a few reasons why your blood type can change later in your life. One of them is extreme trauma or shock. Um, I didn't go into shock, like my entire psyche and physical body didn't go into shock, but they think that my organ, that is my colon, my large intestines, they believe that that organ went into shock from the surgery and it hemorrhaged. It essentially started just like spurting blood and spasming and the shock of that in my whole system, it fucking changed my blood type. So I went from O negative, which is the universal donor blood type, really cool blood type to have, to B positive which uh, for linguistic reasons is also a really cool blood type to have. So my fucking blood type changed because of the trauma that my body went through. So I'm now B positive. I'm getting B positive blood pumped into me. And as they start to stabilize me and I'm in the ICU, I learned that, that this surgery was not, it didn't go exactly how they expected it to go. They found so many abnormalities in my colon that they decided to take out my entire appendix. That was planned. My entire cecum, which was not planned, but that went as well. And they also took three inches of my ascending colon. That was not planned at all either. But all of it looked abnormal and all of it got cut out. So this wasn't anybody's fault, but essentially it was a much more intense surgery than anybody had anticipated. It was a, it was a more major colon surgery than they, than they thought they were gonna have to do when they first went in. So they took out all of this stuff, uh, three inches of ascending colon, my entire cecum, and my appendix all got sliced at once. Um, the organ that is my colon went into some sort of shock. It changed my fucking blood type. I had internal bleeding and hemorrhaged a lot. They gave me all of the blood and the IVs, and then I spent the next four or five days in the ICU, um, basically just getting monitored until my entire system came back online. Now, there are parts of the story that I'm skipping over. There's funny stories and cool little things that happened. Uh, I say cool. None of it was fucking cool. But, you know, <laughs> relatively speaking, there was a lot of, a lot of interesting things that happened um, you know, inside of the, inside of the ICU. Most of my memories of all of this are actually from the ICU because being on a high level of opiates, you know, I was really in and out of consciousness a lot. I can tell you that I was unbelievably impressed with the ICU nurses. Man, are they a special bunch of fucking people. Um, so in tune, so dialed in, like a good cop or a soldier, just tactical and fast and hyper aware of their surroundings. Um, just like these highly caffeinated, ready to fucking go kind of people. You know, not, 
not an ounce of laziness in the building. You know what I mean? Just people just ready to fucking work. It was really impressive. I liked them. I found I could relate to these ICU nurses because when I'm in work mode, whether that's in the studio or, or mowing the grass or whatever, I'm not fucking around. Like when I'm in work mode, I'm in work mode. Kelly will tell you this about me. Like when it's time to go, like we're fucking going. Like there's no half-assing certain things. And that's how these people showed up to work every day. No half-ass in it. It's life or death in the ICU. Um, they kind of made jokes that I was one of the fake ICU patients because for me, it wasn't really life or death other than when I first arrived there. I got stable relatively soon. Um, but you could tell these people had seen a lot of death. They've seen a lot of chaos. And man, when you need something, you will get it within seconds in this ICU. So I made friends with a lot of the ICU nurses. They were just really cool, cool people. And I had some great experiences with them. One Really weird story I'll share with you from the ICU, something that happened um, maybe on day three. They were, you know, I was fasted this whole time. So I'm four or five days, no food. This might have been day four of no food and no water, just saline IVs and stuff to keep me hydrated. I was on a steady drip of morphine, but they would give me Dilaudid. Uh, for what they call breakthrough pain. So when the pain got overwhelming, I'd press a little button and somebody would come in with a little tiny vial of Dilaudid, which is a unbelievably powerful opiate. It were, I mean, in two seconds, you're just fucking cruising. And I'm not really an opiate person. It's not my drug of choice. But, you know, um, I've done enough opiates to know, like, yeah, it, it can be kind of sick. Like, it, yeah, it's a cool drug. You know, I've, yeah, I felt that, that, that warm hug from God before. I get it. And, uh, Man, Dilaudid is a powerful drug. It also has a half-life of like 15 or 17 minutes. So it is in and out of your system really quick, but it is fucking powerful. When it hits you, I mean, you are just gone in a second. And there was a, an, an ICU nurse named Nick. Nick was extremely cool. Him and I became friends, uh, had a lot of philosophy talks and deep life talks. And I think, you know, as an ICU nurse, you deal with a lot of people who are like partially conscious or just on death's door, and they're not really capable of having a, an intellectual discussion with you. And that's not their fault. It's just, you know, they're in the fucking ICU. So like these people don't get to interact with you. But for me, when I was in a good mood or conscious enough to talk, that's what I wanted to do. I'm a talker. So I would really engage with them and, and say like, can we talk or have a conversation? Like, what are you into? Are you into philosophy? Do you like animals? Like you've ever played drums before? And you know, just fucking picking their brain. I think that was kind of fun for them too. So I made a lot of friends, but um, this guy, Nick, um, you know, he's one of my ICU nurses. And at one point I had some real pain and he gave me a Dilaudid shot. And I just had a weird reaction and I started shaking, like almost like convulsions. And I said, Nick, can you please take all my vitals? I need blood pressure and heart rate and everything because something feels really wrong. And he took all my vitals and he said, man, he said, you're, you're good to go. And I said, is, is this psychological? And he said, I think so, man. He said, I think you're, you're having a panic attack. Um, <laughs> well, maybe me cry. Um, and he said, tell me about the goats. And I knew immediately from my knowledge of psychology, I said, you're trying to get me out of my head. You slick motherfucker. You're trying to get me to talk about something else and not, not be hyper-focused on this. And I said, that's exactly what I would fucking do in this situation. And I said, let's talk about goats, man. And so him and I sat there and we talked about goats. Me having the self-awareness to know, or just the awareness to know, that's what you're doing. You're trying to get me out of my head. You fucker, of course you are. And um, so we talked about goats for a bit, and then him and I got up, and we talked about Jordan Peterson, and we start taking a walk, a nice slow lap around the ICU, and him and I just, just chatted and talked until eventually I got out of my own head. And of course, what had happened was, you know, 
taking a fucking super opiate, four days fasted, it just overwhelmed me. I got way, way too high and it freaked me out. It gave me a panic attack. And, you know, to have somebody there that was aware of that, that helped me talk me through it, really, really cool. So him and I traded numbers. We've been texting, really cool guy. I hope to get dinner with um, with him and his wife soon. But yeah, it was um, just a cool, unique experience in the ICU, for sure. One I'm really grateful for. So after several days in the ICU, after shitting, a ton of blood every day consistently after a lot of um, gas pains, after just a constant stream of opiates, after this fucking blur of a week in ICU, finally they say, hey man, you're good to go. You're good to go home. You're stable. Um, you're not hemorrhaging blood. Your, your blood work actually looks good. Um, you're good to go home and recover, man. It's just like had this appendectomy gone well and you, we would have sent you home, you're kind of there now. So it's okay. Go home, rest up. Um, enjoy your, uh, your recovery, your, your pregnant wife, you're solid. So, shoof, deep breath, get wheelchaired out of the hospital, get in the car, Kelly drives me home, and, um, yeah, I sleep it off. Well, not entirely. <laughs> I get some, some much-needed rest in my own bed. And the next morning, I wake up, and I'm sore as fuck, for sure, um, hurting, you know, got a bottle of Oxy, and, um, you know, just, um, yeah, just riding it out, biding my time, and that's it. Well, that night, you know, Kelly had been kind of in an off mood all day, and I could sense that something was a little bit odd, and I had asked her a couple times, everything good? And she said, yeah, she said, you know, some of my pregnancy symptoms aren't there, you know, like, for example, sore boobs, you know, they're not that sore right now. And so we Google, is that normal? Well, you know, yeah, that can be normal. It's not that big of a deal. And she said, you know, I'm, I'm not as, as hungry as I was the last few weeks, and that feels a little weird. And Okay, so we Google that. Well, yeah, that can shift. Your hormones are going to shift in and out. That seems relatively normal. Nothing to get freaked out over. I said, you know, if you need to make an appointment with the doctor, the, the, the pregnancy doctor, then, you know, do that. That's okay. So she makes an appointment. And um, later that night, she came into the bedroom crying. And she said, Adam, I started, I started bleeding. And we both just had this, this feeling of kind of doom and dread, like, what the fuck? That, you know, that doesn't seem very normal, and we Google it, and it can be normal, the bleeding can be, but it's not ideal, you know, it, it, it's, it's not a fucking good sign, it's not like that's a thing most people expect to happen. And so we have this weird talk about, like, you know, if this is a miscarriage, if that's what's happening... Okay, you know, we have to keep our, our we have to keep our, our, our eyes open for that, but we don't know. We really don't know if that's what's happening. And so there are tears and there is sadness, but it's it's a mixture of fear and not sure if we should be hopeful, and I don't fucking know. So we make the appointment with the doctor. And um, we go to the doctor and they do a uh, an ultrasound where they go in and look around basically with a, a type of a camera. And then we sit down with the doctor, and they basically tell us that this ultrasound looks essentially the same as the last one you had several weeks ago, that the fetal development has stopped, and that while you are technically pregnant, the life inside of you has stopped growing. And over the coming weeks, your body will catch up and realize that, and you will naturally miscarry this child. And you know, Kelly teared up in the office because 
we had thought that might be the case. But now we know. And I told her, I said, you know, just, I said, you know, not here. Let's go home. Let's go home. It's okay. I know we've got to talk. I know we've got to cry. I know we've got, we've got plenty of things to do, but let's get home. That's it. That's our goal right now. We're just going home, okay? And you have to go to the fucking window where you pay and swipe in a credit card and all this shit that's just so far from your mind because who fucking cares? My kid is dead. Who cares? But you keep it together and, you know, keep in mind, I'm two days out of surgery, so I'm just barely fucking moving. I'm high on painkillers and I don't want to be. I want to be present here. I don't want to be high, but I am because I can't take the pain otherwise. And we walk out of this office and we get to the car and I just tell her, let's just get home. Let's get home. Let's get home. And uh, my friend Phil is a very good friend of mine. Phil's older than me. Phil is in his 50s, and he's got two children, and um, him and his wife, Kim, have been together for 30 years, and they just so happen to be renting the guest house that, that I have on my property now. They're in like this transition phase, and they're renting this guest house, and I knew that Phil was home at my home, you know, and I texted him, and I said, you know, I said, hey, man, I need to talk with you. Phil is, um, he's got experience with life coaching, and he's just a good almost like a father figure, you know, he's a, he's a warm person, a very smart guy, very well-versed in psychology, and I just said, I need to talk to you, and I knew he was just the, the person I wanted um, to see in that moment, and I told Kelly, I said, when we get home, I said, I'm going to link up with Phil for just a minute, I said, I just want to talk to him and have a guy's moment, and um, then I said, you know, I'll come in and I'll meet you inside and you and I can, can cry together. We can have our talk. We can do whatever we got to do to start healing and processing this. And so we get home. I give Kelly a hug. I say, I'll meet you in, in the bedroom in just a few minutes. And I go over to my guest house where Phil is. And I just hugged him, man. All of the trauma and the pain and the, the anguish of the last month and about six weeks, all of the fear in the hospital and of the surgeries and in the ICU and all these procedures and the anxiety of the debt that's coming with this and my dead kid, it all just hit me in one moment. And I just hugged Phil, and we just cried together. Just two grown men just crying. And the reason I wanted it to be Phil, why he was the, the guy that I wanted in that moment, was because Phil is such a people person. He loves his sons so deeply. He was the only person that cried when I told him Kelly was pregnant, out of joy. That's how much he loves humanity and life and babies. And I knew that the sadness I felt was something that I could share with him and he would understand. And uh, he, did, he did. And man, him and I just, two grown men just standing on a porch, just squeezing each other, just sobbing. Uh, and I felt, I just felt loved, you know? So Phil, I know you're listening, man. Love you, brother. Thank you. Thank you. It was a powerful moment. And um, 
Ooh, I just felt so loved, man. Thank you for being my brother. It meant a lot to me and needed it so bad. And so after our, um, after our guy moment, after our bro moment, I said, I got to go be there for my wife. And I went in, went inside and the tears start all over. And, um, you know, you just, you hug your wife and you just sob. And as a man, you know, you try to intellectualize and certain things you try to say, but not everything lands, you know, you're up against the archetypal feminine, you know, you're up against mother nature. Not everything that, that helps me in those situations is going to help Kelly. And so I tried to be the best husband I could. And there were just times when I had to be fucking silent, you know, and just, um, just be with her and tell her I loved her. And that's it. Just compassion and then just shut up and be compassionate and be here and be present. And that's all, that's all there is to do. And so that's all I could do. And you just wait, you know, you let grief take its course. That miserable fucking bitch that is grief, just vicious and weird. What a school shooter of a fucking emotion grief is. She just doesn't make sense sometimes, you know confusing so confusing laughter and tears and confusion and just grief is a mess every time I've ever encountered it whether it's from friends that I've lost or my dog snitch who's buried 15 feet from me right now or from um, the death of our unborn child you know grief always just throws me for a fucking loop I think it's like that for everybody she's just she's weird as fuck and uh yeah so we started grieving and it's been a month or six weeks since that day. And we've come a long way. You know, um, I know Kelly read a book that was particularly helpful called The Miscarriage Map. Um, and my version of therapy and healing through all of this has been to speak with a lot of friends. Um, I like to talk things out, get different in, you know, pieces of advice and input. And so I've done a lot of that. And it has been helpful for sure. But there is a part of this that is inescapably tedious and awkward and slow and sluggish. It's the nature of grief. And I'm, I'm okay with that because I have to be, you know. So it is still ongoing, but I do feel comfortable saying that it's, um, it's a lot better than it was. You know, we're, we're getting there, that's for sure. It's not easy, but um, I have a sense of peace, not ultimate peace, not true peace, but it's there. There's a sense of peace. There's a sense of knowingness that this will pass and we will be okay. Now, I don't want to overshare Kelly's portion of this story for her, um, but essentially the type of miscarriage that she had was called a silent miscarriage, meaning her body didn't necessarily know that um, that she was going to miscarry. So they sent us home and basically said, you have a few options. Um, the easiest of which is to just wait. Wait for her body to catch up and for the actual miscarriage to begin because she was still having some pregnancy symptoms. Her body still thinks that she's pregnant. And so we, we tried that. Um, and, you know, it, it's torturous to just sit around and wait for your body knowing that your unborn child, or at least the fetus, is still inside of your body. I mean, that is, this is supremely uncomfortable. Other options include what's called a DNC, which is a medical procedure uh, similar to an abortion, but essentially where they physically go in and remove the fetus. Um, it can be dangerous. It can be damaging to, to a female's body. And um, that wasn't our first option for sure. 
There's also medication that you can take, but the medication can have adverse reactions as well. It can cause some side effects. It can can be damaging to a woman's body, and so that wasn't our first choice either. And um, you know, without saying too much, uh, effectively, we found out that there was a type of tea that you can take, and so we found a local, like an herbal shop, um, and there's a tea. Uh, that you can brew at home that will induce a miscarriage under certain circumstances. And she was a, a good candidate for, for that option. So we decided to try that route. It was basically the homeopathic route. And fortunately for us, it worked. Um, the unfortunate part is that when it finally did work, it effectively sent her into labor. So she had full contractions that became closer together. It was much like labor. It was a very difficult um, night for her. And she had to spend the night in the ER to get through that. Um, so we had both been in the ER uh, inside of a month. Um, but fast forwarding through the trauma that was that event, um, you know, she made it. Her body did its job. It did it naturally without medication or a medical procedure. And she is um, medically cleared um, to, to try again when she feels comfortable. So we are allowed to have sex. We're allowed to try again. Of course, it's not recommended that you get pregnant immediately after a miscarriage. Um, but like by the new year, she could in theory be pregnant again. And um, yeah, she had another ultrasound follow-up and her body has cleared all of the fetal tissue. So from a medical perspective, um, her body did its job and she's healthy and okay. And in reality, fucking so am I, you know, like at least from a medical perspective, not psychological, not spiritual, just medically, like we're both okay, you know, and man, if you need something to be grateful for in, uh, in a story like this, we've got that. You know, we're, we're okay, and we're okay to try again. We get to take another fucking swing, you know? So there's a lot to be grateful for, that's for sure. And, you know, on that topic of gratitude, I feel like we should make a bit of a pivot to that topic because this podcast has turned out, at least in my perception in this moment in time, a, a bit more morbid and sad and heavy than I anticipated. But, you know, I haven't... I haven't revisited these topics in their entirety since this really started, since that day with Phil on the porch was when it all kind of hit, you know? So, yeah, it is heavy, man. It is hard. It was a lot and still is in some ways. But um, even this exercise in revisiting these these topics is healthy and necessary, and I know my, my brain loves this stuff. It's cathartic. Um but I can tell you in hindsight that one of the things that I took that I took from this experience is that gratitude is of the utmost importance. When my suffering in the hospital, whether physical, emotional, or whatever, combination, when it peaked and the suffering was just fucking overwhelming, I noticed that every thought I had that wasn't rooted in gratitude was actively harmful. Resentment, anger, bitterness, all of the things that one would feel in a situation where bitterness, resentment, and anger are fucking clearly justified, somehow they still don't help. Every time I wanted to, you know, Shake my fist at God to go Jordan Peterson on it. You know, man, I noticed that it just made things worse. And if it makes things worse, it must be wrong. That must be the wrong way 
to approach this. That can't be the right thought. It can't be the right response. Just can't. And the only thing that made anything better ever was something that involved a sense of gratitude, a thought or a notion centered around something I was grateful for. Even if that seemed, if it seemed like a, like a waste of mental energy or, or supremely unimportant, it was the only thing that provided a sliver of relief in those moments. That was it. So it was, it was the only tool in my tool belt. And I'm digging through the fucking tool belt this whole time, reaching for the hammer, the screwdriver, the tape measure, the drill, anything I got, all of my psychology tools, what helps, what helps, what helps. All useless except a spirit and an energy of gratitude. That's it. That was the only thing helpful. Of every tool that I fucking grabbed, gratitude was the only one that did a goddamn thing. And so I would just go through a gratitude list in my own mind of everything that I'm grateful for. And I had no shortage of things that I came up with. My gratitude list was still long. And that was so beautiful. Whether I was grateful for my doctors who were competent and enthusiastic and and capable whether I was grateful for my you know, immune system that saved my life when I didn't even know that I had appendicitis and it beat the infection anyway. You know, I was grateful for my ICU nurses who were capable and competent and fast and impressive. I was grateful for my wife who came to the hospital every single day when I was there and took care of me for a month leading up to that. I was grateful for my mom who flew across the country or halfway across you know, to, to be with her son. Um, I was grateful that, that I had enough money in my bank account to put down the down payments to just get in the fucking hospital. I was grateful to know that my wife can get pregnant, even if this first pregnancy wasn't the one. It took two years for her to get pregnant, and now we know that she can. That's an answer. I'm grateful that we get to walk away from this with our health and well-being, that our bodies are okay, and that we're both expected to recover fully. I'm grateful for my online following of young men and drummers who happily and willingly sent me all of the love and support that anyone could ever ask for. Overwhelming love and support pouring through my phone the moment I asked for it. You know, I don't deserve that and I got it anyway, you know? My gratitude list is fucking long. It's long. And going through that, over and over and over and over was the only thing that helped me. And if there's anything I can leave you with to take away from a podcast like this, it's not, it's not some sad fucking story because me and you and everybody we know, we're all going to get beat up in this life. You're going to get fucked up. As a matter of fact, this is going to kill you. You're not going to make it, you know? I've long accepted that. Death was a part of my um, recovery from alcoholism. The concept of death, thinking about death, understanding that I'm not going to make it out of here. Albert Camus' philosophy of absurdism really changed my perspective on life and death. And I've talked about this in a lot of previous episodes before on this podcast. You're not going to make it out alive. 
But regardless, you got an invitation to the coolest fucking ride in the world. You got invited to participate in human consciousness. And you did nothing to deserve that. You got invited to participate in the most beautiful experiment of existence that we could ever fathom. You get to experience color and light and emotion. And you get invited into the the fucking wave pool of neurology. And you did nothing to deserve a ticket to this ride. But you're here anyway. And in, in the sentiment of Albert Camus, if you can't find a way to deal with the absurdity of this life, then just get the fuck out of the way and let everybody else enjoy it. Because there is so much to be enjoyed here. There is so, so much to be grateful for here. If you can't find it, I don't know what to tell you. And perhaps that's insensitive of me. But when things get hard for me and overwhelming, I just, I dead end at fucking gratitude every time. And I'm grateful for that, as ironic as that is. I'm grateful that at least my philosophy and sentiments and attitude and neurology, that all of it guides me back into gratitude. I'm grateful that that's the case because I don't know what would happen if it wasn't. I think I'd probably kill myself. So I'm grateful that that's not my reality, that I don't want to die, that I want to be here because I still love being here, you know? And I'll take all the suffering and the lessons that come, that come with this life because I feel so fortunate to have a ticket to this show. I'm just grateful to be a human, to have this human experience, and I'll take all the bad because the good is just that good, you know? I love you guys, and I thank you for listening to this podcast. It means a lot to me. I hope to be back really soon, and I hope it's on a topic that is um, (laughs) maybe lighter than this one. Love you guys, and thank you for listening. See you in the next one.